This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear A Family Man by V.S. Pritchett, which was published in The New Yorker in November of 1977. Is your wife beautiful? She had asked him once when they were in bed. William, in his slow, serious way, took a long time to answer. He said, at last, very beautiful. The story was chosen by Kevin Barry, a winner of the International Dublin Literary Award and the author of six books of fiction, including most recently the story collection That Old Country Music, which came out in 2020. Hi, Kevin. Hello, Deborah. Thanks for joining You chose a story by V.S. Pritchett to read today, and I'm curious to know what your background with his work is. Um, You know, I kept away from his work for a long time on on the basis of pure prejudice, actually, because I think when I started to write stories myself in a serious way in my mid-late 20s, you know, I thought I'd better read some as well. <laughs> and Pritchett, of course, gets mentioned as one of the all-time greats of the craft. Um, but there was something about his name, Sir Victor Sodden Pritchett. <laughs> it was just too it was just too English. And I thought these are going to be perfect little cucumber sandwiches of stories. You know, mm-hmm. these are going to be so formally well done and so kind of polite and ironic and knowing. And then I read Pritchett and he is nothing like that. He's nuts. You know, the first thing you, you the first thing you grasp when you read the first paragraph of any Pritchett story is this guy is just off his beam in the most glorious, joyful way. Um, <laughs> and I very quickly became a huge uh, devotee of VSP. I'm always pushing him on friends and others, and I'm, I'm still waiting for the great Pritchett revival to kick in. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I I feel, at least in the U.S., that he is read a lot less these days than he should be. And I'm wondering why that might be. Yeah, like he died in like 97. And like whenever a great writer passes, there's always that period of about a decade or, or 15 years where the reputation has been weighed up. Some writers start to fade very quickly and others maintain their kind of hold on the reading public. I thought Pritchett was going to be just fine, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's such a joyful and glorious and such an empathetic writer. I thought there's no problem for this guy. But he seems distressingly to have slipped off all the raiders. Um, we're, we're doing what we can to bring him back into <laughs> into focus, but it's, uh, it's never too late. There's been very little Pritchett brought to television or film, and maybe that might help. And he's so suited to it, it, it seems unbelievable that that's the case. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if it's because a lot of his stories are kind of comic stories and maybe people don't see them as serious works. Well, I mean, this is one of my bugbears. I think when we read now what we call literary fiction, for all its wonders, what can be very, very rare is a sense of fun. (laughs) Right. Is to have a good time when we're Mm -hmm. reading it. And literature was invented to give us a good time. It wasn't um, invented to educate or to inform or to copper fasten our our, our moral certainties. It was invented to give us a bloody good time and to get through the long dark nights until we face the inevitable void. That's what literature (laughs) is for. And that's what Pritchett gives us on every page. Um, Yeah, he's just so funny, but it's the comedy is never just comedy for comic's sake. It's all—it's always in in the service of of deeper things, and he's always going really deep. Yeah, uh, would you say that's true of the story, A Family Man? I would. You know, I mean, on the surface, this is almost just a long dialogue. A wife and the the young lady who may be having an affair, who is having an affair with her husband, just having this long dialogue and just little flashes of description and back and forth in the middle of it. Um, but we get so much here. There's a great, like Pritchett in that in that old-fashioned man of letters, belletristic way, wrote lots of everything. He wrote lots of critical biographies. And in the first page of his study of Turgenev, he says, one of the greatest human mystery, he said, is how others perceive us. Mm-hmm. That's the great question we can never figure out. Um, in our little minds, we all believe ourselves to be kind of saints. 
and miraculous and kind of beautiful souls, you know, and it's, it's, it's very rarely the case. And all of this story, as it goes along, the women's views of themselves are being kind of put into a different relief with each flurry of dialogue. Mm-hmm. And their, their views of, of the man in question, too. Yeah, Mr. The villain of the piece, uh, <laughs> the sort of glum philanderer, Mr. Cork, appears only in a, in a couple of flashes, really. But he's uh, Pritchard is so economical. We we get him beautifully, Mr. Cork and his flute. <laughs> All right. Well, let's dive into the story now. Here is Kevin Barry reading A Family Man by V.S. Pritchard. A Family Man. Late in the afternoon, when she had given him up and had even changed out of her pink dress into her smock and jeans and was working once more at her bench, the doorbell rang. William had come after all. It was in the nature of their love affair that his visits were fitful. He had a wife and children. To show that she understood the situation, even found a curious satisfaction of reverie in his absences, which lately had lasted several weeks, Bernice dawdled yawning to the door. As she slipped off the chain, she called back into the empty flat, It's all right, father. I'll answer it. William had told her to do this, because she was a woman living on her own, The call would show strangers that there was a man there to defend her. Bernice's voice was mocking, for she thought his idea possessive and ridiculous. Not only that, she had been brought up by Quakers and thought it wrong to tell or act a lie. Sometimes, when she opened the door to him, she would say, Well, Mr. Cork, to remind him he was a married man. He had the kind of shadowed handsomeness that easily gleams with guilt, and this gave their affair its piquancy. But now, when she opened the door, no William. The yawn with its hopes and its irony died on her mouth. A very large woman, taller than herself, filled the doorway from top the bottom, an enormous blob of pink jersey and green skirt, the jersey low and loose at the neck, a face and body inflated to the point of speechlessness. The woman even seemed to be asleep, with her large blue eyes open. Yes, said Bernice. The woman woke up and looked unbelievingly at Bernice's feet, which were bare, for she liked to go about barefoot at home and said, Is this Miss Foster's place? Bernice was offended by the word place. This is Miss Foster's residence, she said. I am she. Ah, said the woman, babyish, no longer but sugary. I was given your address at the college. You teach at the college, I believe. I've come about the repair. A repair? I make jewellery, said Bernice. I do not do repairs. They told me at the college you were repairing my husband's flute. I am Mrs. Cork. Bernice's heart stopped. Her wrist went weak and her hand drooped on the door handle and a spurt of icy air shot up her body to her face and then turned to flaming heat as it shot back again, her head suddenly filled with chattering voices saying, Oh God, how frightful, William, you didn't tell her. Now what are you, you, you going to do? And the word do, do clattered on in her head. Cork, said Bernice. Flute? Florence Cork, said the woman firmly. All sleepy sweetness gone. Oh, yes, I am sorry, Mrs. Cork. Of course, yes. Oh, do come in. I'm so sorry. We haven't met. How very nice to meet you. Williams, Mr. Cork's flute. His flute. Yes, I remember. How do you do? How is he? He hasn't been to the college for months. Have you seen him lately? How silly. Of course you have. Did you have a lovely holiday? Did the children enjoy it? I would have posted it, only I didn't know your address. Come in. Please, come in. In here said Mrs. Cork, and marched into the front room where Bernice worked. Here, 
in the direct glare of Bernice's working lamp. Florence Cork looked larger and even pregnant. She seemed to occupy the whole of the room as she stood in it, apparently memorising everything, the bench, the pots of paintbrushes, the large designs pinned to the wall, the rolls of paper, the sofa covered with papers and letters and sewing, the pink dress which Bernice had thrown over a chair. She seemed to be consuming it all, drinking all the air. But here, Bernice, barefoot amid the disorder of which she was very vain, which, indeed, fascinated her and represented her talent, her independence, a girl's right to a life of her own, recovered her breath. It is such a pleasure to meet you, she said. Mr Cork has often spoken of you to us at the college. We're quite a family there. Please sit. I'll move the dress. I was mending it. Mrs Cork did not sit down. She gave a sudden lurch toward the bench and seeing her husband's flute there propped against the wall, she grabbed it and swung it above her head as if it were a weapon. Yes, said Bernice, who was thinking, oh dear, the woman's drunk. I was working on it only this morning. I had never seen a flute like that before. Such a beautiful silver scroll. I gather it's very old, a German one, a presentation piece given to Mr. Cork's father. I believe he played in a famous orchestra in, where was it, Beirut or Berlin? You'd never see a scroll like that in England, not a delicate silver scroll like that. It seems to have been dropped somewhere or have had a blow. Mr. Cork told me he had played it in an orchestra himself once, Covent Garden or somewhere. She watched Mrs. Cork flourished a flute in the air. A blow, cried Mrs. Cork, now in a rich, meaty voice. I'll say it did. I threw it at him. And then she lowered her arm and stood swaying on her legs as she confronted Bernice and said, Where is he? Who? said Bernice in a fright. My husband, Mrs. Cork shouted. Don't try and soft-soap me with all that twaddle. Playing in an orchestra? Is that what he's been stuffing you up with? I know what you and he are up to. He comes every Thursday. He's been here since half-past two. I know. I have had this place watched. She swung round to the closed door of Bernice's bedroom. What's in there? Mrs. Cork shouted and advanced to it. Mrs. Cork, said Bernice, as calmly as she could, I know nothing about your husband. I don't know what you are talking about. She placed herself before the door of the room. And please stop shouting. That is my father's room. And, excited by Mrs. Cork's accusation, she said, He is a very old man and he is not well. He is asleep in there. In there, said Mrs. Cork. Yes, in there. And what about the other rooms? Who lives upstairs? There are no other rooms, said Bernice. I live here with my father. Upstairs, some new people have moved in. Bernice was astonished by these words of hers, for she was a truthful young woman, and she was startled, even excited, by a lie so vast. It seemed to glitter in the air as she spoke it. Mrs. Cork was checked. She flopped down on the chair on which Bernice had put her dress. My dress, if you please, said Bernice and pulled it away. If you don't do it here, said Mrs. Cork, quietening and with tears in her eyes, you do it somewhere else. I don't know anything about your husband, Bernice said. I only see him at the college like the other teachers. I don't know anything about him. If you will give me the flute, I will pack it up for you and I must ask you to go. You can't deceive me. I know everything. You think because you are young you can do what you like. Mrs Cork muttered to herself and began rummaging in her handbag. For Bernice, one of the attractions of William was that their meetings were erratic. The affair was like a game. She liked surprise above all. In the intervals when he was not there, the game continued for her. She liked imagining what he and his family were doing. She saw them as all glued together. 
as if in some enduring and absurd photograph, perhaps sitting in their suburban garden, or standing beside a motor car, always in the sun, but with William himself, dark-faced and busy in his gravity, a step or two back from them. Is your wife beautiful? she had asked him once when they were in bed. William, in his slow, serious way, took a long time to answer. He said at last, Very beautiful. This had made Bernice feel exceedingly beautiful herself. She saw his wife as a raven-haired, dark-eyed woman and longed to meet her. The more she imagined her, the more she felt for her, the more she saw eye to eye with her in the pleasant, busy middle ground of womanish feelings and moods, for as a woman living alone, she felt a firm loyalty to her sex. During this last summer, when William and his family were on holiday, she had again seen them glued together as they sat with dozens of other families in the airplane that was taking them abroad so that it seemed to her that day after day, night after night, the London sky was rumbling with matrimony, thirty thousand feet above the city and above the countryside and the sea and its beaches, where, she imagined, the legs of their children running across the sand, William flushed with his responsibilities, his wife turning over to brown her back in the sun. Bernice was often out and about with her many friends, most of whom were married. She loved the look of harassed contentment on the tired faces of the husbands, the alert looks of their spirited wives. Among the married, she felt her singularity. She listened to their endearments and their bickerings. She played with their children, who ran at once to her. She could not bear young men who approached her, talking about themselves all the time, flashing with the slapdash egotism of young men, trying to bring her peculiarity to an end. Among families, she felt herself to be strange and necessary, a necessary secret. When William said his wife was beautiful, she had felt so beautiful herself that her bones seemed to turn to water. But now the real Florence sat rummaging in her bag before her. This balloon-like giant, at first babyish and then shouting accusations. The dreamed-of Florence had vanished, this real Florence seemed unreal and incredible. And William himself changed. His good looks began to appear commonplace and shady. His seriousness became furtive, his praise calculating. He was shorter than his wife. His face now looked hangdog, and she saw him dragging his feet as obediently he followed her. Bernice resented that this woman had made her tell a lie, strangely intoxicating though it was to do so, and had made her feel ugly. For she must be so if Florence was what he called beautiful, and not only ugly but pathetic and without dignity. Bernice watched warily as the woman took a letter from her handbag. Then what is this necklace? Mrs. Cork said, blowing herself out again. What necklace is that, said Bernice. Read it. You wrote it. Bernice smiled with astonishment. She knew she no longer needed to defend herself. She prided herself on fastidiousness. She had never in her life written a letter to a lover. It would be like giving something of herself away. It would be almost an indecency. She certainly felt it would be very wrong to read anyone else's letter. Mrs. Cork pushed the letter at her. Bernice took it in two fingers, glanced at it and turned it over to see the name of the writer. This is not my writing, she said. The hand was sprawling, her own was scratchy and small. Who is Bunny? Who is Rosie? 
Mrs. Cork snatched the letter and read it in a booming voice that made the words ridiculous. I am longing for the necklace. Tell that girl to hurry up. Do bring it next time. And darling, don't forget the flute. Rosie. What do you mean, who is Bunny? Mrs. Cork said, you know very well. Bunny is my husband. Bernice turned away and pointed to a small poster that was pinned to the wall. It contained a photograph of a necklace and three brooches that she had shown at an exhibition in a very fashionable shop known for its modern jewellery. At the bottom of the poster, elegantly printed, were the words created by Bernice. Bernice read the words aloud, reciting them as if they were a line from a poem. My name is... Bernice, she said. It was strange to be speaking the truth. And it suddenly seemed to her, as she recited the words, that really William had never been to her flat, that he had never been her lover, and had never played his silly flute there, that, indeed, he was the most boring man at the college, and that a chasm separated her from this woman, made so ugly by jealousy. Mrs. Cork was still large with unbelief, but as she studied the poster, despair settled on her face. I found it in his pocket, she said helplessly. We all make mistakes, Mrs. Cork, Bernice said coldly across the chasm. And then, generous in victory, she said, Let me see the letter again. Mrs. Cork gave her the letter and Bernice read it. At the word flute, a doubt came into her head. Her hand began to tremble and quickly she handed the letter back. Who gave you my address? I mean at the college, she said in an accusing tone. There is a rule that no addresses are given or telephone numbers. The girl, said Mrs Cork, defending herself. Which girl? At inquiries... She fetched someone. Who was it? said Bernice. I don't know. It, it began with a W, I think, said Mrs. Cork. Wheeler, said Bernice. There is a Mr. Wheeler. No, it wasn't a man. It was a young woman with a W. Glowitz. That begins with a G, said Bernice. No, said Mrs. Cork, out of her muddle now, afraid of Bernice. Glowitz was the name. Glowitz, said Bernice, unbelieving. Rosie Glowitz, she's not young. I didn't notice, said Mrs. Cork. Is her name Rosie? Bernice sat down. She felt giddy and cold. The chasm between herself and Mrs. Cork closed up. Yes, said Bernice, and sat on the sofa, pushing letters and papers away from herself. She felt sick. Did you show her the letter, she said, no, said Mrs. Cork, looking masterful again for a moment. She told me you were repairing the flute. Please go, Bernice wanted to say, but she could not get her breath to say it. And you have been deceived. You are accusing the wrong person. I thought your husband's name was William. He never called himself Bunny. We all call him William at the college. Rosie Glowitz wrote this letter. But that sentence, bring the flute, was too much. She was suddenly on the side of this angry woman. She wished she could shout and break out into rage. She wanted to grab the flute that lay on Mrs. Cork's lap and throw it at the wall and smash it. I apologise, Miss Foster, said Mrs. Cork in a surly voice. The glister of tears in her eyes and the dampness on her face had dried. I believe you. I have been worried out of my mind. You will understand. Bernice's beauty had drained away. The behaviour of her two or three lovers had always seemed self-satisfied to her. But William, the most unlikely one, was the oddest. He would never stay in bed and gossip, but was soon out staring at the garden, looking older, as if he were travelling back into his life. Then, hardly saying anything, he dressed turning to stare at the garden again as his head came out of his shirt or he put a leg into his trousers in a manner that made her think he had completely forgotten her. Then, 
He would go into her front room, bring back the flute, and go out to sit on a decorative iron seat, painted white, under a tree in the garden. He looked comically formal sitting there, and she had once drawn a cruel caricature of him with his long lip drawn down at the mouthpiece and his eyes lowered as the thin, high notes, so sad and lascivious, seemed to curl away like wisps of smoke into the trees. Sometimes she laughed, sometimes she smiled, sometimes she was touched and sometimes angry and bewildered. One proud satisfaction was that the people upstairs had complained. She was tempted, now that she and this clumsy woman were at one, to say to her, aren't men extraordinary? Is this what he does at home? Does he rush out to your garden, bold as brass, to play that silly thing? And then she would be scornful. To think of him going round to rosy glowitzes and half the gardens of London doing this. But she could not say this, of course. And so she looked at poor Mrs. Cork with triumphant sympathy. She longed to break Rosie Glowitz's neck and to think of some transcendent, appeasing lie that would make Mrs. Cork happy again. But the woman was making everything worse by again asking to be forgiven. She said, I am truly sorry and... When I saw your work in the shop, I wanted to meet you. That is really why I came. My husband has often spoken of it. Well, at least she can tell a lie too, Bernice thought. Suppose I gave her everything I've got, anything to get her to go. She looked at the drawer of her bench, which was filled with beads and pieces of polished stone and crystal. She felt like getting handfuls of it and pouring it all into Mrs. Cork's lap. Do you work only in silver, said Mrs. Cork, dabbing her eyes. Most of the time, said Bernice, I am working on something now. And even as she said it, the great appeasing lie came out of her before she could stop herself. A present, she said. Actually, she said, we all got together at the college. A present for Rosie Glowitz. She's getting married again. I expect that is what the letter is about. Mr. Cork arranged it. He is very kind and thoughtful. She heard herself say this with wonder. Her other lies had glittered, but this one had the beauty of a newly discovered truth. You mean bunnies? Collecting the money, said Mrs. Cork. Yes, said Bernice. A great laugh came out of Florence Cork. The big spender, she cried, collecting other people's money. He hasn't spent a penny on us for thirty years. And you're all giving this to that woman I talked to, who has been married twice, two sets of wedding presents. She sighed and shook her head. You fools, she went on. Some women get away with it. I don't know how, but not with my bunny. She said this proudly, and as if with alarming meaning. He doesn't say much. He's deep, is my bunny. Would you like a cup of tea, said Bernice, politely, hoping she would say no and go. I think I will, Mrs. Cork said comfortably. I'm so glad I came to see you. And what about your father, she added, glancing at the closed door. I expect he could do with a cup. Mrs. Cork seemed wide awake now, and it was Bernice who felt dazed, drunkish and sleepy. I'll go and see, she said. In the kitchen, she recovered and came back trying to laugh. He must have gone for his little walk, she said. He must have heard us talking. He always slips out for his little walk in the afternoon on the quiet you have to keep an eye on them at that age, said Mrs. Cork. They sat talking, and Mrs. Cork said, Fancy Mrs. Glowitz getting married again. And then, absently, I cannot understand why she says, Bring the flute. Well, said Bernice agreeably, he played it at the college party. Yes, said Mrs. Cork. But at a wedding it's a bit pushy. You wouldn't think it of my bunny, but he is pushing. They drank their tea, and then Mrs. Cork left. Bernice felt 
an enormous kiss on her face, and Mrs. Cork said, Don't be jealous of Mrs. Glowitz, dear. You'll get your turn, as she went. Bernice put the chain on the door and went to her bedroom and lay on the bed. How awful married people are, she thought. So public, sprawling over every one and everything, always lying to themselves and forcing you to lie to them. She got up and looked bitterly at the empty seat under the tree in the garden. And then she laughed at it and went off to have a bath so as to wash all those lies off her body. Afterward, she rang up a couple called Brewster, who told her to come round. She loved the Brewsters, so restfully conceited as they were in the burdens they bore. She talked her head off. The children stared at her. She's getting odd. She ought to get married, Mrs Brewster said later. I wish she wouldn't swish her hair around like that. She'd look better if she put it up. That was Kevin Barry reading A Family Man by V.S. Pritchett. The story appeared in The New Yorker in November of 1977 and was included in the collection On the Edge of the Cliff, which was published in 1979. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Kevin, the characters in this story are, to some extent, kind of stock characters, sort of drawing room comedy. You know, we have the philandering husband and the domineering wife and the independent bohemian mistress. How do you think Pritchett makes something more of them? Um, I think the primary engine of, of Pritchett's comedy is obviously his miraculous and deeply weird dialogue. Nobody really talks like this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but he, he springs it and he gives a sense of reality to it. He always has these kind of vaguely stock situations. A very particular England is depicted Um, Mm -hmm. This kind of mid-century England, really, this kind of wistful England. He brings to mind like the poetry of of Philip Larkin or, you know, records by the Smiths, 60s -hmm. British kitchen sink realism. That's also the world that he depicts, but he does so with this kind of a deranged, light, comic touch. In this story, uh, what I love very much about it is is it's, there's a sense of a long, uh, relay in in a tennis match where you're never quite sure who has the advantage, who who's getting ahead, who who knows exactly where they are on the court and how it's going to come out, and they the women come into a kind of collusion with each other 
as it proceeds. They want to believe the best of, of the glum philanderer and of their own places. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're very invested in that. You mentioned earlier that the story is fundamentally about how we want to be seen and how we're actually seen. And I feel as though from the very beginning with Berenice, how she thinks of herself, what she thinks of herself, and how she actually behaves in the world and is seen are these two radically different things. We hear, for Berenice, one of the attractions of William was that their meetings were erratic. The fair was like a game. She loved surprise above all. But then the very first sentence... We hear she's just sat there all afternoon, all dressed up in her pink dress, waiting for him. (laughs) Not hoping to be surprised, but hoping to be proven right. Um, And then she's just given up and gone back to being in her smock. Yeah. You you know what what it is also, in a way, is it's a kind of a portrait of a young artist in embryo, almost. And, and a young artist or any young creative person at this time, at this very early stage in their in their creative lives or careers, the fundamental thing that they need is material, <laughs> right? <laughs> she wants and needs material. And Mr. Cork is looking promising on, on, on the material front. The fact of him in, in his kind of uh, melancholy uh, kind of flute-playing way. Um, but yeah, she's playing her part in, in the world. She has a very firm idea of who she wants to be and who she needs to be perceived as. Um, she's a long way from it. And very quickly, when, when she's presented with reality in the form of the quite cruelly depicted Mrs. Cork at the door, things start to come apart for her. Yeah, I mean, what she wants to be is this independent, bohemian, free thinker. Yet everything that she does seems to lead in a different direction. I find it fascinating. She's drawn to spending time with couples because they make her feel her singularity or, you know, her singleness because she's not like them. And then she doesn't like being around young single men because they try to put an end to her particularity. So she feels that she is only unique when she's with people who are married. (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's one of the things that moves us about the story because we fear for her immediately. We fear that it's not going to work out in the way that she wants it to work out. She maybe is going to be drawn away from her bohemian creative ambition and be brought into this whole kind of bourgeois married world that she fears but at the same time seems to really want to have have a taste of at a slight angle to it. Um, But yeah, she, she's such a slippery character. And and as ever with Pritchett's characters, they dance all over the place on, on the page and you're always trying to pin them down and he won't, he won't let you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the kind of um, lovely unanswered strangenesses in the story, I think, that this thing she has for married couples. I don't think it's that she's like a husband hunter. I don't think she's she's out for affairs all the time with the men in question, but she wants to have a view of this kind of married world without quite being part of it. And it's nice. It's it's kind of for the story. In terms of the story, it's odd. It, ma- it makes us wonder about her. Yeah. Especially the way she thinks about William and his family, almost as though, you know, she's, she's in there with them. When they go on a, a family holiday, she's sort of in the plane with them. Yeah, and I mean, it's one of the great, it's the great sentence of the story, really, that long run-on sentence when she talks about day after day, night after night, the London sky was rumbling with matrimony 30,000 feet above the city. She's drawing herself into being, and she can only draw herself into being with her lack of experience of the real world by portraying herself in relation to others when she believes William's wife to be beautiful, she is beautiful. When she sees the reality that she may not be quite beautiful, she she fails in herself and in her perception of herself. She's so uncertain and she's making her way in the world on very teetering, tottering steps. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating to think about what happens in that moment when she realizes that William has lied about his wife's beauty. I mean, who knows what his motive was maybe to make himself seem the kind of attractive man who can land a great beauty or maybe just to make Berenice feel special because even though he has this very beautiful wife at home, he's coming to her. But at that moment, the wife's beauty kind of does rub off on her. You know, she feels implicated in this marriage somehow. 
it gives her her sense of worth? I don't know. What do you think is going on? Yeah, I'm. I'm I was amazed uh, having a practice run through the story, rereading it. I was amazed at how how little we get of Mr. Cork in the actual line and in the rhythm of the piece, but how much of him actually starts to come true. And he's this, you know, this this. Pritchard has his usual kind of musical or end of the pier comedy with the fact that the whole story turns on. On, on the fact of Mr. Cork's flute. You know, this is, this is his, <laughs> <laughs> his usual humour. But it's puzzling to me that as a, as a story writer looking at it, the sheer economy of, of the way he brings him so fully into life. What message do you think he's trying to give to Berenice when he, when he says his wife is beautiful? Perhaps he recognised in her the sense that she is drawing this world of her own into into place around her and um, that he can sort of um, strengthen his own position with her, I guess, by glamorising the situation, which is really quite uh, tawdry and a commonplace. Yeah, yeah. And that's what the sort of cloud we see falling on, on Berenice as soon as Mrs. Cork enters her space, this revelation that everything is not as glamorous as it has seemed. And then suddenly she has another revelation, which is actually he's sleeping with someone else who is not attractive, who's older, and to whom he's maybe more drawn because he seems to see her every Thursday, <laughs> you know. Um, and and he's only very occasionally comes to Berenice. Yeah, and we, we start to suspect much of Mr. Cork at this stage and there's a the great comic line about it. Is, is he playing the flute in every garden in, in London um, <laughs> at, at this point? Um, what I like about the story is as well is that there's no effort at, at any kind of um, closure or any, any kind of a sense of, a, of an arc being completed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we do leave it at a place where... Bernice is is certainly at a cusp point in her life where she's going to be drawn in one direction or another into Bohemia or into the bourgeois life. Um, I I love the effect of this uh, rather sniffy Mrs. Brewster who just appears in the last couple of paragraphs and gives us some important information, I think, and that she's getting odd. She ought to get married. She'd look better if she put her hair up and this kind of sniff. It just seems like a little throwaway um, but what it tells us is that Bernice's act is slipping. It's becoming apparent to those around her that she's maybe not quite the person that she's presenting or making herself out to be. Right. Do you think that that moment of judgment comes because Bernice has just had this kind of reevaluation and, and shock? Or do you think that the Brewsters and others have been thinking this for a while? Maybe so. Maybe it's the case that the rug has been pulled uh, at this point. She realises that, that Mr. Cork and, and, and his flute are in popular demand uh, <laughs> around the London of their time. You see, this is the problem with Pritchard. He puts you in that end of the pier music hall mode yourself and you, you can't stop it uh, once you get going <laughs> on, on, on his rum all humour. But maybe that's the case, that this is the first thread in her world kind of being ripped apart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I find that she goes through so many different permutations just in the course of her, you know, hour with, with Mrs. Cork. <laughs> As she's, she's a marvellous fabulist, you know. She's constantly working on her feet and constantly uh, rethinking it all. And I, I love the... Um, the satisfaction she gets from her little lies that, that she comes up with on the spot because yes. of the Quaker background she has. Um, of course, we, we know Pritchett had a, had, had a very uh, highly moral Christian scientist background. So, so I think there's something of, a, of, of his own uh, history coming in here as well in, in the kind of uh, the glee she has at her own kind of naughtiness. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the first things we hear about her is that she doesn't like to lie. And so William asking her to tell this little lie about her having a father in the house in order to protect her rubs her the wrong way. And then she becomes the most incredible liar. 
<laughs> she takes all this this almost kind of sensual pleasure in it. Uh, you know, uh, she, she can feel all, all the air being sucked out of the room. Uh, as any kid, as any child knows, when, when, when you first tell a serious lie and get away with it, it's a glorious feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just think, yeah. wow, wow, I, I, I can really work this world, <laughs> is what you what realise. She's glittering. Um, I mean, what's amazing to me is that she sort of deflates in the course of the scene because she's understanding the truth of her relationship with William and, and understanding maybe the truth of her own life and future. But at the same time, she's inflating because she's feeling very clever and she's feeling in control of the situation through her lies. Yeah, I mean, she feels, I guess... Or, or she's telling herself, I've, "I've, you know, I got away with it." That was a, a potentially extremely tricky situation where, where the wife of my lover calls around, and I, I, I've taught on my feet, and I've come through it, and I've actually made her feel better about herself. Yeah. Do you think that the sort of final set of lies, where she says, "You know, this is a wedding present for Rosie," and so on, at that point, she's protecting William, she's protecting Rosie. Why does she save him? Because she could, at that point, she's angry, she's deflated, she could throw him to the wolves. Yeah, I, like it's almost as if she's here discovering her uh, her true creative talent, which <laughs> which which is to is to skillfully uh, put up this web of lies in front of us, and she's so good at it. Every, every everybody comes out of it feeling kind of good about themselves. <laughs> um, it gives Mrs. Cork something to go home with, thinking, "Well, you know it," even though she probably does not believe it in in her heart of of hearts. Um, but it's what's beautiful. Then I think is just that last little sniffy line from the late appearing Mrs. Brewster when we see that maybe Bernice isn't getting away with it all in, in, mm. in the way that she thinks she is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose Bernice has picked that up herself just in the course of realizing what place she holds in William's life. But um, I think you're right. I think this is her moment of becoming an artist in a way. There's, there's that moment where she wants to take all of her gems and, and polished stones and pour them into Mrs. Cork's lap. You know, she's she wants to feed her an artwork in a way, and that's what her lies become. Yeah, it, it's one of um, the beautiful moments of the story, I think, this moment of empathy for the wronged woman. Um, it's almost self-congratulatory for Bernice mm-hmm. as well. You know, she, she almost thinks, aren't, aren't I wonderful for, for doing this and, and for having this glorious thought, you know? He's so slippery, Pritchett, as a story writer. He, uh, on every sentence, he's, he's shifting the meaning just a fraction and, and keeping you on your toes as, 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 as a reader. And, and he, he does it pretty much in, in every story. There's also, I mean, there's nobody who writes description like him. Just these little throwaway slashes of description that give us so much. Um, I remember the very, the very first story I read by Pritchett. I can't remember what it was. And a boss of some lady was described as having eyes like a pair of blatant prisoners behind his eyeglasses <laughs> and I thought there is no other writer who's ever been alive anywhere who could get away with that sentence um, <laughs> but it's just it's all through a family man and, and through any story that people picked up but what's incredible is just his vitality and his vim in the line and I mean he wrote stories for a very long time his last collection I think came out in 88 or 89 when he was 88 or 89 he was born in 1900 and you read stories by Pritchett from the late 30s early 40s through to the 1980s and they don't lose any of the vigour and they don't lose any of the slipperiness he really was a a master yeah (laughs) I mean in this story in particular I just find that the sensitivity to sort of not just change in mood, but to the expression of that change in mood is incredible. I mean, there's that moment when she opens the door to Mrs. Cork and Mrs. Cork seems to be sort of sleeping with her eyes wide open. And then suddenly she snaps into her face again <laughs> and looks at Berenice's <laughs> bare feet. You know, there's just like little things where you can absolutely see it, um, but you've never heard it described in that way. Yeah, he's just, he's just, it's constantly unexpected uh, where, where he puts his camera, I guess, where he's switching the, the focus to. Um, I guess, like he did write novels, he wrote four or five novels, I think, as well. But he, 
there is such kind of intensity in the rhythm. He is uniquely suited, I think, in fictional terms at least, to the story form. Well, coming back to um, what you said earlier about the story being a tennis match, who wins? <laughs> I think, in a sense, Mrs. Cork comes out the better of it. Um, it, it depends what, how, how we define the victory here. Mrs. Cork can go ahead and collude with herself and, I guess, keep her family life together and make this fable come real for herself, that there's an innocent explanation for everything. Like, as you, as, as you suggest, I think it's going, to be, it's going to be more difficult for Bernice to do so now that she realises she's been taken in, even if she's danced her way out of the difficult situation. And maybe she's starting to realise that actually people can see me quite clearly after all. Mm, she might have to reconsider those narcissistic young men. The dreadful young men who were brought, <laughs> brought in briefly. Um, I, I, I would say that by the standards of the way literary fiction makers of the male gender were writing women in the mid-70s, Pritchett is pretty good and pretty empathetic. Um, he always, all through his career, he very often uh, focused on women in his stories. They were very often as often as men at least the main characters which you know wasn't the usual uh, mm-hmm. with 20th century male writers I remember an essay by Martin Amos describing Pritchett's art as womanly because <laughs> he focused so much on women and we'll, we'll just leave that there but yeah I, I, I think he he writes women fantastically he's never misogynist he's never a misanthrope he's never a snob in his work he's really really generous writer he feels deeply, I think, for all his characters, even the most dreadful ones, maybe especially for the most dreadful ones. Yeah. Speaking of which, if we can't say who's the winner in the tennis match, we can at least say who's the loser. And that's that's William, who's gone from being this kind of protective, handsome lover to being this completely ridiculous sad sack playing his flute on a garden bench, you know. Nevertheless, he still has his flute. <laughs> well, actually, Mrs. Cork has his flute. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. Okay, but but there are many gardens of London. There are many flutes. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you, Deborah. It's always fun to go back to VSP. V.S. Pritchett, who died in 1997 at the age of 96 was a fiction writer, essayist, journalist, memoirist, and biographer, the author of more than 40 books, including the story collections You Make Your Own Life, On the Edge of the Cliff, and Essential Stories, which was published by Modern Library Classics in 2005. He published more than two dozen stories in The New Yorker between 1949 and 1989. Kevin Barry is the author of six books of fiction, including the novel City of Bohane, for which he won the International Dublin Literary Award in 2013 the novel Night Boat to Tangier, and most recently, the story collection That Old Country Music, which was published here in 2020. He's been contributing fiction to The New Yorker since 2010. You can download more than 170 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find The Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.